You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the host of the show, Sweltering in the Summer Heat. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Isabella Ganor and Gideon Remez about Soviet involvement in the Six-Day War. Dimona is uh, the location of uh, Israel's main nuclear facility, uh, which in 1967 was already not entirely secret. Uh, people knew it existed, but not very much more than that. Foxbat uh, is uh, the NATO code name for the uh, Soviet MiG-25 aircraft. Amitai Etzioni about a new direction in U.S. foreign policy. In thinking about what the moral policy, the foreign policy should be for the next administration, whatever, Democrat or Republican, uh, I was looking for an overarching principle, not just an ad hoc adjustment. And it occurred to me that the place to start is to recognize that while we have many different human rights, and there's a fairly long list, one of them really uh, is uh, dominant and takes precedent over all the others, and that is our respect for life. And Greg Mittman about how allergies have affected American society since the 19th century. And in fact, the reason that Ernest Hemingway spends his youth in northern Michigan is because his father, who was a wealthy doctor living in Oak Park, uh, suffered from hay fever and the family bought a summer cottage uh, up in northern Michigan to, for his father to escape hay fever. Stay tuned. In June of 1967, Israel launched a series of military strikes against its Arab neighbors in a conflict known as the Six-Day War. In their new book, Fox Bats Over Demona, The Soviets' Nuclear Gamble in the Six-Day War, Isabella Ganor and Gideon Remez uncover new information that implicates the Soviet Union as a far greater influence on the Six-Day War than has been previously suspected. Isabella Ganor is a research fellow at the Harry Truman Research Institute at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Gideon Remez was a leading newscaster at Cole Israel Radio for 36 years. Isabella Ganor and Gideon Remez, thank you so much for being on Yale University Press today. Thank you. Thank you. Where does the title Fox Bats Over Demona come from? Well, uh, the two keywords there are, one, Dimona is uh, the location of uh, Israel's main nuclear facility, uh, which in 1967 was already not entirely secret. Uh, people knew it existed, but not very much more than that. Foxbat uh, is uh, the NATO code name for the uh, Soviet MiG-25 aircraft, uh, which in 1967 was still unknown to the West. It was already setting uh, records for both speed and altitude in the Soviet Union, uh, but Western observers got the first glimpse of it only in July 1967, after the Six-Day War, which, as we have found, was no coincidence, because one of our main exhibits in the case we build for the Soviet Union having instigated the war was that uh, two, uh, the prototypes of the plane were sent over Israel uh, on very sensitive and provocative reconnaissance missions over the Dimona nuclear center in May 1967, and that was one of the main triggers for the war. 
Now, your book is a re-examination of the Soviet Union's role during the Six-Day War. For listeners that don't have a background uh, in the Six-Day War in this period of Middle East history, could you give them what the traditional account of both the Six-Day War and the Soviet Union role in it was before you started to do your work? Well, the traditional approach is that while the courses for the war have built uh, over some years before 67, but uh, the uh, trigger for the crisis and escalation to war was uh, uh, given by the Soviet Union uh, when it uh, uh, transmitted uh, disinformation, what is now known as a uh, disinformation or a big lie, to Egypt that Israel is massing uh, 10, 12, 13, 15, 18, 20 brigades on the Syria border with a, um, a goal to attack Syria. And then when uh, the crisis developed and uh, started to show uh, signs of getting out of hand, the Soviet Union did what it could in order to restrain the Arabs and to de-escalate uh, the crisis and to prevent war. Our fighting uh, just run contrary to this conventional wisdom, and we take uh, uh, the conventional uh, knowledge point by point, point and uh, showing how the new information from, the, uh, uh, from Russia and from the American, Israeli, and other documents shows that the uh, uh, Soviet Union actually instigated the crisis and uh, was interested in the war. In other words, uh, that, uh, that uh, mis- supposed disinformation uh, was not any attempt by the Soviets to fool the Arabs uh, and to lead the, and just to cre- create uh, some minor nuisance, not a miscalculation that they later tried to retract, but a deliberate plan that was well thought out before even at the Politburo level in Moscow uh, to provoke Israel into striking first. So what was it that started the two of you on this path of looking into the Soviet Union's role in this? Was there a particular catalyst that began your research? Oh, yes. About uh, seven years ago, we just stumbled on the very curious interview with a former Soviet naval young officer uh, who uh, told the Ukrainian daily that on June 5, 1967, he was ordered by his uh, commander to raise a detachment of 30 men out of uh, uh, 110 of uh, his brigade and uh, to prepare them for landing on Israeli shore. The name of this man is uh, Yuri Nikolaevich Kharipunkov, today lives in Ukraine, in Donetsk. And uh, uh, at first we couldn't believe our eyes, and our skepticism was such that we just immediately saw that the man is uh, simply of, uh, fant- uh, giving uh, uh, went to his fantasies. We started to uh, look into the direction because it was so contrary to whatever we knew about the war. We had to start uh, looking into it. Why? And uh, first of all, we discovered that the man himself is extremely known and uh, respectable, and uh, that uh, the next step was to check the uh, scholarship, non-scholarship about the Sixth War, which couldn't uh, produce anything contrary to his uh, memoirs. And then, when we started to check the Russian uh, side, memoirs that were published by uh, Soviet veterans. And so on, we, uh, we just discovered that Kripunkov's interview was the tip of a huge iceberg, which we tried to uncover a little bit. If we could just add that um, for the very, uh, for, for the specific matter of the planned landing on the Israeli coast, we have corroborating evidence from a number of ships uh, then in the Soviet flotilla in the Mediterranean, ranging from submarine tenders uh, to destroyers, uh, and also uh, 
parallel uh, testimonies from the Soviet nuclear submarines who were then sent into the region well before the overt outbreak of the crisis. So that uh, uh, a general picture emerges that the Soviets had prepared, among other things, which we can go into later, a naval intervention that was to be unleashed once Israel was drawn into a first strike that would cause it to be branded as the aggressor. So now let's get into the history of, the, of uh, this era. And starting with what I thought was a very interesting discussion about how Soviet thinking was shaped in 1967 to a degree by the things they did in 1956 during the Suez Crisis. So could you talk a little bit about how the Suez Crisis and how the Soviet Union responded to that in 1956 influenced their thinking in 1967 with regards to Israel? Well, with regard uh, to 56, uh, that whole adventure was for the Soviets an example of how they could use their nuclear clout in order uh, to achieve their regional purposes in the Middle East. A thinly veiled uh, threat of uh, nuclear weapons against Britain, France, and Israel, who had cooperated at the time against Egypt, uh, sufficed, at least in the view of the Soviets, in order to make all three of them uh, withdraw from uh, Egypt. And uh, that, for the Soviets, was an example of how they could use their nuclear clout. Therefore, uh, they were very apprehensive that Israel might achieve a counter-deterrent. And when they received from Israel uh, in late 1965 uh, a message uh, that was passed uh, through a senior Israeli uh, security figure uh, and uh, the leader of the Israeli Communist Party uh, to the uh, Soviet embassy in Tel Aviv, whereby Israel was determined to develop its own nuclear weapons and to acquire them, uh, that immediately set the Soviets uh, into motion to stop Israel from doing so. It faced them indeed with a dilemma that was quite similar uh, to the one the U.S. is facing now vis-a-vis -vis Iran, because the Soviets also, to some degree, and it's hard to tell here how much of this was real and how much was feigned, but they definitely also were apprehensive about an Israeli nuclear threat to the southern regions of the USSR itself. And so they started first with a diplomatic effort, and then uh, this quickly gave way to military planning, uh, which, in our view, uh, determined the timing uh, for their gambit in the Six-Day War. Did Soviet troops actually physically get involved against Israel during the Six-Day War? At least in a number of cases, yes. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, the commitment of the top Soviet, still secret, still experimental aircraft flown by the top Soviet pilots, uh, for those very provocative raids uh, over Israel's main nuclear facility that indicated to the Israelis that it was uh, on the Soviet's gun sites, uh, and uh, which uh, were very instrumental in pushing Israel toward the decision to go to war. That's w that was one. We, uh, the actual uh, naval landing on Israeli shores uh, did not take place for the most part uh, because the initial Israeli airstrike prevented the Soviets and the Arabs, of course, uh, from exercising air superiority, and it would have been almost suicidal in, under those conditions. But we have at least a record of one uh, Soviet Marine force that did land west of the Suez Canal, tried to cross it eastward, uh, was attacked by the Israeli Air Force, which of course couldn't know whether they were Soviets or Egyptians, causing them a lot of casualties, and the commander of that force is on record, as relating how he lost quite a number of men and many wounded, including himself. Fox Bats Over Demona, the Soviet's nuclear gamble in the Six-Day War, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Isabella Ganor and Gideon Remez, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast.
Should American foreign policy be geared toward the ideal of spreading democracy or towards a real politic that only takes national security concerns into consideration? In Security First for a Muscular Moral Foreign Policy, Amitai Etzioni argues for a third path, that the primacy of life should be the overarching concern of America's foreign policy. Amitai Etzioni is the author of many books, including From Empire to Community, Winning the War, and The Common Good. He is professor of international relations at the George Washington University. Professor Amitai Etzioni, thank you for taking some time to talk to Yale University Press today. In your book, Security First, you describe a new foreign policy doctrine called the primacy of life. Could you explain this term? In thinking about what the moral policy, the foreign policy should be for the next administration, whatever, Democrat or Republican, uh, I was looking for an overarching principle, not just an ad hoc adjustment, working more with the Allies or most of the United Nations, which are all ideas which deserve consideration. And it occurred to me that the place to start is to recognize that while we have many different human rights, and there's a fairly long list, one of them really uh, is uh, dominant and takes precedent over all the others, and that is our respect for life. That's what I mean, the primacy of life. And in, indeed, uh, on the United Nations lists, uh, very early in the list we have the right to be free of being killed, maimed, or tortured. The other rights, of which are, uh, I treat them as semi-sacred, in, in effect presume that your life has been protected. So uh, that sounds like maybe a highly theoretical uh, issue, unless you start thinking about the streets of Baghdad, and you suddenly realize that uh, this is not a, a, a small uh, matter. So once I start thinking this way, it kind of turned into a, almost like a magic key. Every place I... Every door which I found locked kind of yielded to this point. And let me just give one example and then give it back to you. Uh, and we, for the last uh, 10, 20 years, it, it, nothing to do with the Bush or Clinton administration. Uh, we've been pressuring Russia to uh, democratize more. With very little success, in effect, they've been moving in the opposite direction. Now, I want to emphasize there's nothing wrong, and I'm doing the book, there's nothing wrong with uh, a encouraging them to respect the press, to allow for competitive political parties, but we also have realized that if Putin would do that, he would endanger his position, and uh, he simply doesn't look uh, like he wants to go in that direction. At the same time, there are in Russia, by any expert's estimate, 90% uh, of the dangerous nuclear material from which terrorists can make nuclear bombs it's not in the United States, it's in Russia. It's very poorly protected. It's often under old-fashioned lock and key. Uh, in the Sunday cities, the guards are uh, drunk or on drugs. So uh, there have been a lot of incidents of corruption. In fact, there were 408 cases last year where the attempts were made to smuggle uh, small amounts of it. And so far, they have not been successful, but any minute they could. So we have a program, it's known as the Non-Lugar Program, whose purpose is to pay the Russians to blend down these dangerous materials and make them uh, uh, harmless, basically. Well, the program has not been increased by one penny uh, since 9-11. So 
So if you look now at these two items, you see my larger point. Democratization is fine, but it's a slow and cumbersome process, and we surely should not rely on bombers and uh, missiles to democratize people. We need slowly to convince them of the merit of this political uh, system. But what we can do, in a relatively short order, if you just put our mind in our pocketbook to it, is vastly increase, decrease what is the largest danger, danger to life, the danger that somebody's going to take out one of our cities. So what are some of the structural reasons that this policy hasn't been, I guess, pursued by different Western powers? Well, for the last six years, we had a different theory. The theory was, uh, and to some degree still is, that the only democracies are reliable allies and are safe that democracies have two attributes. One is they do not go to war against other democracies. And second, uh, by providing countries such as Afghanistan and Iraq for democratic institutions and processes, they will kind of suck up into the political institution violence and conflict in the streets. So there will not be a reason anymore for people to resort to uh, bullets if they can use ballots. And uh, if you accept that theory, then it's really very important for us to democratize Russia because otherwise it could not become a reliable partner for peace. But my book shows, I think, uh, in the fine, fine detail how uh, while we went a long way to provide democratic institutions to Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, there have been elections and most people consider them Fair and open, there are parties, there are media is relatively free. We got them a fairly decent constitutions. Nevertheless, uh, the terror uh, is so high in the streets of most Iraqi cities and uh, in large part of Afghanistan that democratization is largely endangered or meaningless. And that the Iraqis themselves, uh, it's not so difficult to understand for those of us who lived in New York or one of our other major cities, including New Haven, when crime was very high. The, the first thing we wanted in those days was to uh, be safe, that you not have to sleep as a dude in Harlem in bathtubs to uh, protect ourselves from uh, random bullets, that we not feel imprisoned in our own homes. So it's not surprising that the people of Baghdad at the moment, what they earn more force, first is not free speech or the right to assemble or all these very important democratic rights. They just want to uh, have a, a reasonably safe life so they can enjoy all those other things. So they, I think, increasingly be recognized, and uh, if anybody needs more ammunition, you'll find plenty in my book, that what we need is, first of all, Let's protect people from being killed, either individually or as uh, whole cities full of them as under a nuclear attack. And then uh, we'll have the kind of increased tranquility, which will allow democratic institutions slowly to go largely uh, naturally at home rather than being imposed from the outside. Getting back to the primacy of life doctrine, when can states intervene in domestic affairs of sovereign powers under this doctrine? Again, and that's where I started with, the 
what I can, uh, kind of enjoyed writing this book, when you suddenly find that there's one master key which opens so many different doors. We talked about Russia. Uh, we talked about uh, the Muslim world. Uh, the same applies here. If you have a situation like you have in Sudan now, or you, or you had in Rwanda, where a large number of lives are endangered, we should be there because we are saving lives. We cannot run around the world and say that our new principle foreign policy is going to be that lives must be protected and then say, but not if they're Sudanese. And so uh, if you want people to buy into that principle, if they want us for them to collaborate with us to stop terrorism, uh, then we also need to stand by uh, and save them for the kind of governments you have had in Rwanda and now have in uh, Sudan. It's a very interesting, for instance, I would not have intervened in, in Grenada, I would have not intervened in Haiti, because there we went, especially in Haiti, to promote democracy. I would, not in, I would promote democracy only by non-lethal means. I would not invade a country to democratize it, but I would to stop a genocide. If you have any questions for Dr. Etzioni, you can contact him through his blog, yalepress.typepad.com slash security underscore first slash, or you can go to the Security First page at www.yalebooks.com and look for the link to his website. Security First for a Muscular Moral Foreign Policy is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Amitai Etzioni, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. Every May and September, millions of Americans are afflicted with seasonal allergies. In his new book, Breathing Space, How Allergies Shape Our Lives and Our Landscapes, Greg Mittman looks back at how American sought relief from allergies has affected such diverse topics as the growth of Denver, Colorado, to the development of the air conditioning industry. Greg Mittman is the William Coleman Professor of the History of Science and Professor of Medical History and Science and Technology Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Greg Mittman, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to Yale University Press today. Thank you for having me, Chris. How have your own problems with allergies shaped the writing of this book? Well, I grew up in the 1960s as a severe asthmatic child, and it was about a decade after the first generation of allergy drugs that provided symptomatic relief were developed, such as antihistamines, steroids, and bronchodilators, many of which the same drugs we have today. Um, and although they provided some relief, um, they, my um, asthma wasn't improving. And there was some discussion about sending me off to the Children's Asthma Research Institute and Hospital in Denver, which was an asthma convalescent home and actually connects to part of their early history in the book where I discuss um, the settlement of, of western towns such as Denver and, and Tucson where people with asthma and other respiratory illnesses flocked um, to find relief. And so in the case of Denver, it's estimated that about 30% of Denver's initial population in the late 19th century were asthma and TB sufferers. They were known among the community as lungers um, and uh, went there because they believed the dry mountain air um, 
offered respite um, from their respiratory symptoms. So um, that's one way in, in which the, my own personal history um, connects to the larger history of the book. Another way uh, that that personal uh, story is, is woven in is I grew up in a white middle-class family in a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania where I had access to good quality medical care. At the same time, uh, my today brother-in-law, Akeem Torres, uh, was living um, on the Lower East Side about two hours away uh, in Manhattan uh, in a poor neighborhood, a very crowded apartment building, and uh, with some of the biggest rats and roaches he said he'd ever seen. And the family was part of a, a wave of immigration of Puerto Ricans from New York City in the 1950s. Um, and his sister Millie grew up as a, as a severe asthmatic child in that neighborhood. And the family, uh, quite poor, had to make do on their own. So it, it really illustrates the way in which in these different spaces, asthma was a, a quite different disease. And, and really led me into investigation of today's current asthma epidemic and its roots and the economic, social, and environmental inequalities that shape urban space and life. Because that really is one of the themes that runs through the book that most people would never have thought of, is that there's a strong undercurrent of, of class within how allergies were seen starting in the 19th century and leading into today. And your book opens with a, a rather infamous run-in between the actor Mr. T and the citizens of Lake Forest, Illinois. And I remember this when it happened, and your book reminded me about it. What actually happened, and how does that lead into your discussion of allergies? Sure. Well, in the fall of 1986, uh, Lawrence Turad, uh, known to most of your listeners as, as Mr. T, and many may remember him from the hit TV show The A-Team, uh, moved to Lake Forest, which is an exclusive, wealthy, largely white neighborhood on Lake Michigan, just north of Chicago. Uh, Mr. T had, had grown up uh, under the grinding poverty of, of Chicago's largest ghetto, the Robert Taylor Homes on the south side of Chicago, which were at the time the largest single public housing project in the world. And, and by the 1980s, it was also an urban asthma zone where African-American uh, children were five times more likely to die of asthma than whites. Now, wealth that he earned as, as a televisionist star afforded him the luxury of uh, moving into this new fashionable estate, the Two Gables Mansion, located in Lank Forest, which was built in the early 1900s and was artfully landscaped with native plantings of oak trees and, and shrubs and other kinds of plantings by the famed landscape architect Jens Jensen in, in the early 20th century. But in the spring of 1987, when those oak trees came into bloom, Lake Forest neighbors were shocked and, and horrified to awaken one morning to the sound of chainsaws cutting down the trees that adorned his estate and, and had helped earn the community the label Tree City USA. And Mr. T, when asked why he did this, why he cut down it's probably about 70 oak trees, um, allegedly claimed that he cut them down because the trees were provoking his allergies. And the incident was uh, dubbed the Lake Forest Chainsaw Massacre, uh, made national headlines. The community was up in arms. They passed an ordinance that, that nobody 
could cut down trees anymore within 35 uh, feet of, of the sidewalk. Um, and the antidote nicely illustrates just m one of many ways Americans have altered the places where they live, work, and play to create a space in which to breathe more easily. But oftentimes, as I show in the book, those environmental changes have led to allergies increasing rise. And it also points uh, to how those with money are much more able to escape the environmental burdens of modern society than those without such means. So it comes back to this uh, question of class that, that you began with. So let's start with one of the first parts of uh, your book, the question of hay fever. Um, hay fever really seems, came into its own really seems in the late 19th century. Well, again, this uh, kind of comes back to the, to the class disparities. Um, hay fever, as you say, really, we, it only begins to appear in the United States um, after the Civil War is where we really begin to see the first references to hay fever. And it was really seen as an upper-class disease. It, it was primarily seen to afflict urban, middle, and upper-class professionals, lawyers, doctors, businessmen, uh, those who uh, used their intellect uh, to earn a living and who saw themselves as um, stressed, basically over, had overwrought, tired nerves that made them sensitive to irritants around them. So one of the popular remedies uh, was to spend six weeks holiday at these very exclusive and fashionable hay fever resorts. So for uh, New Englanders, those living in urban centers such as Boston and New York City, the White Mountains was a very favored destination, and they were um, in, in those areas. They would be big, grand hotels um, where these wealthy hay feverites would come about mid-August, and they would spend their time there until the first frost. Um, just relaxing in nature. Nature was really seen as the antidote to what they regarded was a malady of civilization. And in the case of the Midwest, in places like Chicago, um, the northeastern shore of, of Lake Michigan, uh, going up to uh, Mackinac Island, some of uh, listeners might be familiar with, uh, became a very popular hay fever destination. And in fact, the reason that Ernest Hemingway spends his youth in northern Michigan is because his father, who was a wealthy doctor living in Oak Park, uh, suffered from hay fever, and the family bought a summer cottage uh, up in northern Michigan to, for his father to escape hay fever. So that, for the wealthy, uh, escaping, moving to a different place uh, was the popular means. But for those who couldn't afford that, they really had to just suffer it out in the Breathing Space, How Allergies Shape Our Lives and Landscapes, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Greg Mittman, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale University Press book sale continues apace. To get in on these great deals, just go to www.yalebooks.com, click on that half-off sale banner, and look for the book of your dreams that's 50% off. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, Go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You will also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. 
My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. So long until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2007. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.